Christine Emba is a columnist for the Washington Post and an author based in Washington, D.C. As she puts it, her views on faith and God and sex have ping-ponged over the years, making it hard to pinpoint exactly where she stands on certain issues. But back in 2022, she published a book entitled Rethinking Sex. And in the book, Emba challenges many of the prevailing assumptions of our cultural moment when it comes to sex and dating. In an age marked by sexual liberation and casual sex, it seems like the best that the world has to offer us is an ethic of consent, meaning, supposedly, that we should be free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, as long as there is mutual consent. Now, consent, of course, is necessary, but it's not nearly enough. As Emba herself writes, non-consensual sex is always wrong, but the inverse is tricky. Is consensual sex always right? And the main argument that she makes in the book is that 21st century people are sexually liberated, and yet we're miserable. And perhaps you might be one of them. There's got to be a better way. Now, the irony is that many New Yorkers consider the Bible's view on sex to be not only outdated, but oppressive. And yet, from talking to people, I can tell you as a pastor that almost everybody seems, if not disappointed, thoroughly confused about the state of our relationships in our world today. And so I'd like to suggest that perhaps, surprisingly enough, the ancient wisdom of Jesus the ancient wisdom of Jesus might just offer the critique and the guidance that we're really yearning for. Now, we're in the midst of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which I have suggested is Jesus' vision for the good life. This is God's whole new way of being human. And here Jesus lays out for us how to truly thrive and flourish as human beings, and that's especially important when it comes to sex and sexuality. But we have to enter into this discussion with great care. And believe me, I spent this last week thinking about how to enter into this discussion with great care, because there is nothing more personal, nothing more complex, nothing more potentially contentious than talking about intimate human relationships. There's so much emotion around sex. It evokes feelings of guilt and shame and fear and hurt and embarrassment and regret. And it can lead us to hiding and lying, pretending and deceiving or judging and blame shifting. So as we begin today, could we start out by just admitting our sexual brokenness? Can we all just begin in a common place by admitting our brokenness? Because Jesus makes it very, very clear from the outset of the Sermon on the Mount that not one of us is perfect, not one of us is pure. So let's take off our masks and stop pretending, and let's lower our shields and stop being so defensive, and let's just listen, let's just listen to what Jesus has to say. And we might actually learn something. 
And so I'd like us to consider three things today. I'd like us to listen to what Jesus has to say about love, lust, and the Christian life. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find our passage printed on page 810 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us, so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real living encounter with him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would like us to start with the second half of the passage first and consider what Jesus has to tell us about love. Now, people in Jesus' day assumed that if they did not literally break the seventh commandment by physically sleeping with someone else's spouse, then they were good to go. They had nothing to worry about. But Jesus shows that God's purpose for sex and intimate human relationships runs far deeper than that. And it's striking that Jesus has only just barely gotten the Sermon on the Mount going. And he immediately starts talking about sex. Now, isn't that interesting? He knows that our relationships burn a pathway to the core of who we really are. And therefore, he doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to it. But the first thing that I want you to note is, despite what you might have heard, despite what you might have experienced, the Bible offers an incredibly positive view of sex in the human body, an incredibly high view. Most people tend to either demonize sex in the human body or to deify it. Most people either demonize it or deify it. Traditional moralists tend to demonize sex in the human body, but they have far more in common with the ancient Greeks than they do with the Bible. The ancient Greeks were dualists. They had a dualistic worldview. They they assumed that the physical, the body, was bad, but the spirit was good. So they thought of sex as dirty. And a traditional moralist thinks much the same thing. Perhaps sex is just a necessary evil for procreation in order to perpetuate the human race. And therefore, if you're a traditional moralist, you view sex as defiling, degrading, corrupting, and therefore you should avoid it. So some people demonize sex, but then the expressive individualists of our day, of the modern age, deify sex. They deify sex in the human body and say that rather than avoiding it, we should indulge in it because sex is really all there is. 
So use it. Use it for pleasure. Use it to accrue power. Use it to express yourself. And the more you have of it, the better. You don't need to be tied to marriage or a particular relationship, and no one should judge you based on whatever your personal proclivities may be. And whatever you do in the privacy of your own home or in the privacy of your own imagination is your own business. So some demonize sex and tell you to avoid it. Others deify sex and tell you you should indulge in it. But the problem with both of those views is that they're far too simplistic. Far too simplistic. And what's amazing about the Bible when it comes to sex in the human body is that it is amazingly nuanced. It provides us with this perfect balance. Because on the one hand, in the opening chapters of Genesis, God affirms that sex and human bodies and sexual intimacy are good. These are part of God's good creation. Read the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Song of Songs. Marital love is described not just in romantic terms, but erotic terms. And let me just tell you, you only know the half of it. <laughs> Because our English translations chicken out. The translators are wimps. They do not actually tell you what it really says in the Hebrew. You know why? Because it would be too explicit. You could not give Song of Solomon to a kid. So the translators are chickens. That's why you should go to seminary. There's one good reason to learn Hebrew. <laughs> so you got to realize that there is nothing inherently sinful or degrading about sex, sexual intimacy, or sexual pleasure. The point is that the Bible not only affirms the act of sex, but also the pleasure it brings as good. And yet, at one and the same time, while sex and the body are good, not everything we do with sex or not everything that we do with our bodies is good. So sex is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing, and therefore it needs to be properly channeled in our lives. Years ago, when I was working as a campus minister at Northwestern, I met a college student who had grown up in a very moralistic context, and he was told as a kid to avoid having anything to do with, a, with sex because it was poison. He was told that sex was poisonous. And I had to explain to him, no, 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 sex is not poisonous, it's powerful, and that's why it needs to be properly channeled. Let me give you an analogy. This is just an analogy. It's sort of a funny story from my childhood. But when I was in sixth grade, I went over to a friend's house, and we started firing off rockets in his backyard. Now, these were not little sparklers or rinky-dink firecrackers. These were legit rockets that could reach significant altitude because they were powered by black powder. So after firing off a few of these rockets in the backyard, I had the bright idea of, of dismantling these rockets. I wanted to see what they were made of. Now, you have to remember that my frontal lobe had not completely developed at this point, but what I decided to do was to pour out the gunpowder inside the rocket, and I piled them up in a heap and took them into the backyard. My friend had the good sense to keep his distance from what I was about to do, but without a fuse of any kind, I lit a match and then lit that gunpowder on fire and I almost blew my hand off. The, the, the eyebrow, my eyebrows were seared. <laughs> and you see, that's what we're talking about here. Sex, from God's point of view, is delightful, but it's also dangerous because it's so powerful, and that is why it has to be properly channeled in our lives. And so how is that? The Bible's answer is that sex needs to be channeled to the right person at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons, in the right state. 
and the right state is the permanent and exclusive covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. A permanent and exclusive covenant, which means that the Bible calls us to chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So as a side note, if you're currently intimate with someone sexually to whom you are not married, then you need to stop from the Bible's point of view. Now, this is where people would say, what? Did you actually just say that? Did you actually just say that in 21st century New York City? And I did. And that is my view because that is Jesus' view. And he's very clear about this. Jesus uses two words here. One word is translated as adultery. The other word is translated as sexual immorality. But both of those terms rule out of bounds any and all forms of sexual intimacy that don't take place within the context of a covenant. So you should only have sex within the, within the covenant. And you should never have sex outside of a covenant. And this isn't the only place where Jesus talks about that. He's asked again about divorce in Matthew 19. And Jesus says, if you want to know something about divorce, you have to understand something about marriage. And if you want to understand something about marriage, you've got to know something about sex. And if you want to know something about sex, you've got to understand something about gender. It's very interesting. We try to separate marriage and sex and gender, but, but Jesus shows the fundamental unity among them all. So in Matthew 19, Jesus actually doubles down on Genesis 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning, God created them. What? God created them male and female. So right off the bat, he's suggesting that gender is not a mere social construct, as we might say today. No, it's part of God's creation. It's part of his design. But then he goes on and he says, God created them male and female, and therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not merely suggesting that they become one body, but rather that they become one person. So you you see here, the idea is that two opposite but complementary bodies come together in order to not only signify but seal the joining together of two lives. So sex is meant to be a metaphor as well as a seal of the comprehensive union of one's whole life with another. See, sex is a unitive act. It's meant to unite us to another person. Sex makes you want to commit yourself. Sex makes you want to commit. That is its function. That is its purpose. The very nature of love is to want to make promises. And so through sex, you basically say to another person, I give my whole self to you. Sex is a nonverbal way of communicating to another person, I belong permanently and exclusively to you. And that is why when you remove sex from the permanent exclusive covenant of marriage, you distort its purpose because you turn it into a lie. What do I mean by that? Well, if sex is a way of saying nonverbally, I belong permanently and exclusively to you, then if you remove sex from the context of a permanent and exclusive covenant, you turn it into a lie because you're communicating something with your body that is not actually true with your life. I'll give you a great line from a terrible movie. In fact, it was so terrible I haven't even seen this movie. But in the movie Vanilla Sky, Cameron Diaz's character says to Tom Cruise's character, Don't you know 
that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. And that's right. That's good theology. When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. So if you join your body with another, if you're willing to give your body, but you're not willing to give your whole life, well, then you're distorting the very purpose of sex. And you're just using another person. Or at best, you're perhaps mutually agreeing to use one another. Or if you use sex in isolation all by yourself, you're twisting something that's meant to seal your bond to another person in on yourself which again distorts its purpose. And what I want you to realize here is that Jesus is deadly serious about this. Deadly serious. Because sex is not neutral. Sex has the power to make you or break you. It's going to lead you in one direction or another, but it will not leave you alone. And that's why we need to listen to what he's saying here. But let me, let me suggest something surprising. I would suggest that you should... Listen to what Jesus has to, be, to say about sex, not just because it's super spiritual, even though it is, but listen to what Jesus has to say about sex because it is super practical. It's super practical. It works. And that's what Christine Emba is trying to figure out and trying to show us. If you want to have a healthy love life rather than an unhealthy one, if you want to have a strong marriage rather than a weak one, if you want to have good sex rather than bad, then here's the path. This is the way. Walk in it. But let's turn from what Jesus says about love to what he has to say about lust at the beginning of the passage. So verse 28, famously, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, we could flip it around because Jesus is talking about everyone. He uses the word all. So this applies to everyone, men and women. Two weeks ago, I shared some of the responses of college students who were asked to read the Sermon on the Mount in their introductory English class. And I, I shared some of those memorable comments with you. One person wrote, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is not talking about sexual desire or attraction. Because sexual desire and attraction, as we've said, are good things. That's part of God's good creation. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that attraction is so important that you might need to reorder your whole life around it. The problem is not attraction. The problem is not noticing a good-looking person. The problem is what you might call the look. The look. You know what I mean? You see, Jesus phrases his words in a very specific way. He says, everyone who looks with lustful intent. Or the way that it is put in the old King James Version is, whoever looks in order to lust. So he's talking about deliberately indulging in personal sexual gratification by continued looking. The problem when you fantasize about another person is that you objectify them, you treat them as an object in order to please yourself. 
But the whole purpose of sex is not to please yourself, but to commit yourself, to commit yourself, body, mind, and soul, in order to enrich the other person, not to objectify the other person. See, lust just wants pleasure. Love wants another person. Now, a lot of people ask, well, then how do you know? How do you know if you've crossed this line into looking with lustful intent? And I'll I'll never forget the advice that I got 30 years ago from my old Young Life leader when I was just a 15-year-old boy. His advice to me came from Martin Luther. Martin Luther once said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And you see the difference? There's a difference between noticing an attractive person and indulging in self-gratification. But if that's the case, then what do you do about it? Well, Jesus insists that we have to be ruthless. We have to be ruthless about rooting out the sin in our lives. Now, notice he, he points out that there's a connection between our eyes and our hearts. If to look with lustful intent with our eyes or with our imagination is to commit adultery in the heart, then we have to deal with the problem at its source, with our eyes. And that's why Jesus goes on to say then, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than, than, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, what are we to make of these statements? Some, of, some people have taken Jesus a little too literally. One famous example would be Origen, a scholar who lived in Alexandria in the third century. In response to these words, he castrated himself. Wouldn't recommend it. I think that uh, he demonstrated a little more zeal than common sense. Thankfully, the Council of Nicaea, which brings us the Nicene Creed, also outlawed that as a practice. But what we need to realize is that Jesus is using dramatic figures of speech. He's not advocating self-maiming, but rather self-denial. And he wants us to get to the root, the source of the problem. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, if your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. If your feet cause you to sin, don't go. There's going to be images, there's going to be acts, there's going to be places that we need to avoid. We should act as if we had plucked out our eyes, cut off our hands, sawed off our feet so that we're incapable of entertaining these sins. There's going to be people, there's going to be situations, there's going to be context, there's going to be relationships that we need to do away with. But no matter who you are, no matter what your state, we all have to learn how to control our desires. That's what Jesus is telling us. We all have to learn how to control our desires. And let me get real practical for a minute because let me just say that over the course of my ministry as I've pastored and counseled people, there have been many people at different points in time who have come to me and have said things like this. Well, I have a problem with lust or I have a problem with pornography or I've got a problem with sexual addiction or I've got a problem with sexual fantasies. But you know what? I think it's just because I'm single. 
And I'm confident that as soon as I'm married, I'll be able to deal with all these problems. They won't be a problem anymore. And let me just say, you are fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. These problems will not just go away. You bring them into your marriage. And in some ways, they might even get worse, especially, especially if you have been training your body years over years to respond to certain stimuli. So let me share a quote with you from C.S. Lewis, which I am quite confident you have never heard in a sermon before. This is a, a quote that comes from a personal letter that he wrote to a friend offering some advice when it comes to one's sex life. And I will edit this slightly for the sake of the kids. But in this letter, C.S. Lewis addresses what you could call solitary sexual experience, sexual acts that you engage in all by yourself. So Lewis writes, For me, the real evil of solitary sexual experience would be that it sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Solitary sexual experience is to be avoided, as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. So in our final moments... I would like us to ask, how are we supposed to respond to all of this? Well, remember, I've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount is telling you who you become when the presence and the power of God come upon you. When the power of Jesus comes into your life, you become different. You become an entirely different kind of person. And so if you are not yet a Christian, this is the first step. You're not going to make any progress in your life, especially in the realm of sex and sexuality, until you first put your faith and trust in Jesus. But if you are a Christian, if you're relying on Jesus rather than yourself for your relationship with God, then what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Well, let me say quickly and briefly that as a church, as a community of people committed to following Jesus in the heart of New York City, we need compassion, we need clarity, and we need courage. First of all, we have to lead with compassion. Jesus calls us to a standard when it comes to sex, which, let's face it, not one of us can attain. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, not one of us is perfect, not one of us is pure. So I want you to do something for me. I'd like us to engage in a little radical honesty. I'm going to read something to you, 
And if you resonate with any one of these statements, I want you to raise your hand, and I want, to, I want you to keep your hand raised. All right? If you have ever committed a sexual sin of any kind, if you've ever looked at something you should not have, if you've ever flirted with the wrong person, if you've ever given the look, if you've ever inappropriately tried to attract the look, if you've ever withheld yourself sexually to hurt your spouse, if you've ever been wounded by feeling unattractive, if you've ever failed to talk to your kids helpfully about sexuality, if you've ever had a single regret, if you've ever felt for a single moment like you could use some help from God about some area of sexuality, if you've ever said the word sex, raise your hand. Look, we're all in the same boat. Not one of us is in a position to stand in judgment upon another. And look, the Christian life is far too difficult, far too countercultural for us to live out on our own. We need one another. And so the church has to be a place, it has to be a place where we find healing and wholeness for our sexual brokenness. It's got to be a place where people who are riddled with guilt and shame and fear and hurt and embarrassment and regret can come out of hiding, who can bring their sin into the light rather than allowing it to fester in the darkness, knowing that they will be embraced with the love of Jesus so that they might find grace and receive mercy to help them in their time of need. Look, we're all in the same boat. You're not alone, and this is why we're here. This is why we're here. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. If you are struggling with any kind of sexual sin, if you have any regrets about the past, if you're wallowing in shame, talk to me. Talk to Chris. Reach out to our elders and our trustees. We would all be more than happy to speak with you because we've all been there. James 5.16 tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. And let me also just say, Chris and I, we've been pastors in New York City for a long time. And you know what that means? It is impossible to shock us. It would be impossible to shock us. We've heard it all. So number one, we need compassion. But secondly, we need clarity. We need to provide a safe haven for people regardless of whatever their sexual mistakes might have been in the past. But we also need to speak with clarity. We need to speak with clarity about marriage and divorce. This is going to be a place where marriage is prized, where marriage is fought for, where we will seek reconciliation as far as possible, rather than treating divorce as merely inevitable when two people grow apart or begin to live separate lives or simply no longer love one another because they've fallen out of love. No, we're not gonna treat divorce like just a really bad breakup. We're gonna fight for our marriages but secondly, we need to speak with clarity about pornography. You've got to realize that this is a multi-billion dollar business that is destroying people's lives. And the explosion of online pornography today is nothing like the dirty magazines of the past. As a pastor who's counseled many people over the years, I can tell you that pornography is poison. This is addictive, and it leads people not only to objectify others, but it also leads to treating people in ever more dehumanizing ways because of the ways in which 
pornography is mainstreaming ever more extreme sexual acts that are increasingly violent and sometimes dangerous. And perhaps what's most sad is that pornography just deadens the male libido and makes it that much harder to connect with a real woman. So we've got to be serious about that, and we also need to speak with clarity about sex and gender. Jesus shows us that marriage, sex, and gender, they're fundamentally united to one another. And we are not, we are not doing young people today any favors by telling them that in order to be their true, authentic selves, they have to choose their own identity. That is terrible advice. Your sexuality, your gender, that's not the bedrock of your identity. The bedrock of your identity is your relationship to Jesus. See what love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that, that is fundamentally who we are. Now look, we should have nothing but compassion. Nothing but compassion. When people feel like they're attracted to the wrong person or attracted to the wrong gender or trapped within the wrong body, And that is heart-wrenching. What a heart-wrenching condition. That breaks God's heart. It should break ours as well. But again, speaking from experience as a pastor, counseling many people over the years, I can tell you that whatever dissonance people experience deep within themselves, it is not going to be resolved. It is not going to be healed through experimentation or through hormone therapy and certainly not through surgery. If anything else, it will lead people to feel worse about themselves, sometimes even suicidal. So can we please speak with clarity about this? The thing that I fear is that 20, 30 years from now, kids today will ask us adults, why did you do that? Why Why did you let me make such poor choices when my brain had not even fully developed yet, when I hadn't even finished puberty, and now I have to live with this for the rest of my life? We will rue the day that we were so blind. We have to speak with clarity about these things. But then finally, we need courage. No matter who you are, no matter what your proclivities may be, no matter what you've done in the past, we all need the courage to bring our sin to the cross of Jesus so that our sexual desires might be reborn. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Look, if you are in Jesus Christ, Jesus has already died for all of your sexual mistakes and failures. They can never, never be held against you anymore. So take courage. There's nothing to be afraid of. Bring your sexual desires to the cross. Crucify them. Give them to God so that they might be reborn. Do you know the story of the king? The king who goes out to visit his subjects and as he makes his way into his territory, he passes a poor beggar along the side of the street. And the beggar lifts up his bowl, hoping to receive some money from the king. But instead, the king approaches the beggar and asks him for something. The beggar doesn't have much, but he looks in his bowl. He's got a bowl of rice, and so he just picks out three grains of rice. It's all he's got. Hands it to the king. 
The king says thank you and walks away. But as he leaves, the beggar looks in his bowl and realizes that the king has now left these three nuggets of gold. And then he thinks to himself, oh, if only, if only I'd given him everything. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that in this world in which we live, we are so often disappointed and confused by the state of our relationships. And therefore, we pray that we would be a community that practices compassion because we know that not one of us is pure. We all need your grace and mercy to find healing and wholeness. And give us the, the ability to speak with clarity about these issues that are so complex, so divisive, and yet that cut to the very heart of who we are. And Father, give us the courage. Give us the courage to give our desires to you so that they might be reborn. Father, we have no idea what you have in store for us. If only we could give you everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.